Hey to all you fish enthusiasts out there. Whether you're an avid angler or just curious about fish, we'd like to welcome you to Fish of the Week, your audio almanac of all the fish. It's Monday, June 19th, 2023. We're on a week-by-week tour of fish across the country with guests from all walks of life. I'm Katrina Liebrecht with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service in Alaska. And I'm Guy Hero, and this week we've got a bit of an obscure fish for you, a little bit of a deep dive, if you will. We're talking about the Mariana snailfish. Awesome. And I'm very pleased to introduce our guest. Dr. Alan Jameson is a deep sea scientist with the University of Western Australia. He's a leader in the biological exploration of the ocean's hadal zone, which is basically ultra deep. We're also pleased to have Jihan Yunus, who's a U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service park ranger and a visitor center services specialist for the Mariana Trench Marine National Monument. So really glad we can make the time zones work and a very warm welcome to both of you. Okay, So I love that we're going to be learning about this place, somewhere that very few people ever get to go in their lifetime. So Jihan, we were hoping you could help ground us in terms of where you are and where that is in relationship to the Mariana Trench. And then I have a follow-up question for you, Alan, to help us actually imagine going beneath the surface as we start so we can understand where these fish are exactly. All right. Thank you so much. Half day, everyone. I am Jihan Yunus. I am a Saipan native. Saipan is part of a chain of 15 islands in the Marianas archipelago. And so the Mariana Trench Marine National Monument includes three units, one being the islands unit, which includes the three northernmost islands of the Marianas, which is Erlan de Pajaros, also known in our native tongue, which is Chamorro, the island of Mog, and also the island of Asuncion. The islands unit also includes three underwater seamounts, which is Northwest Ifuku and the Ai seamount. In the volcanic unit, we have 18 underwater volcanoes, which are part of the Arc of Fire National Wildlife Refuge. And then within the trench unit, we have containing the submerged seafloor and lands from the northern limit of CNMI's exclusive economic zone to the southern limit of Guam's exclusive economic zone. And within the trench unit, we have the second deepest point which is about 35,000 feet deep um, compared to Challenger Deep. So I hope that gives you some reference to the area that we are at, which is the Western Pacific. Western Pacific, okay. And the trench itself, I think it's like 1,500 miles long and then 44 wide or something like that. I mean, it's, this is a big a big area we're speaking about. So. I calculated once that the volume of the trench is roughly the same volume as the Himalaya. Mm. Wow. It's roughly speaking about the same. So if you turned it upside down, it's essentially the Himalaya. Yeah. So we always tell kids that, you know, the whole Mount Everest can fit in the Mariana Trench. It's amazing. With almost a mile to spare. And if I look out my window right now, I'm looking at our tallest mountain here on Saipan. It's called Mount Tapochal. And so we like to tell our kids that you're standing on the tallest mountain in the world, below sea level. Yeah, and jetliners are like flying at that altitude. It's crazy yeah. to invert yeah. that. Now, Alan, kind of follow up for you where now we're oriented where we're going. If we're at the surface and we're actually going to dive our way down to the Hadal depth, 
Like, what is that like? What kind of gear are we going to need? I assume we're going to need lights, some kind of special submersible to be in. Kind of just if you could help us imagine getting down to depth where these fish are. I'd love to hear that. Yeah. So if you want to go down personally, then you need a submersible. And there are currently only two in the world that can go to those depths. So the, the Chinese have one that came online about a year ago, maybe. And we've been using one for about four years now. And it's very cramped. It's not a particularly nice experience. You get used to it. It's kind of cool, but it's basically two people in a titanium ball, which is not much bigger than two people. And it has lots of buoyancy to bring it back at the end, and it has lots of weights to sink it, and we have lights and cameras and thrusters. And to get to that depth takes a long time. So we will be getting the submarine, and we get towed by the ship for maybe half an hour till we're on the, the launch point, and then they'll let us go. And you leave the surface pretty quickly. And so the light diminishes very fast. It just it basically somewhere like turning the dimmer switch and then it's just black. Mm. And then you basically sat there for four hours on the way down to so to get to Serenity, for example, takes just over four hours and oh essentially goodness. free fall. It's it is incredibly deep. And all the time you can see stuff coming past the viewport. There's material in the water all the way down. This idea that the deep waters are somehow empty and void of life is not true. There's life all the way down. And then you finally get to the bottom, and our submarine tends to slow down as you get deeper because the seawater density increases. So the last half hour seems to go on forever because you just want to see the seafloor, and it just seems to take forever before it finally comes out of the darkness. And then you see this seascape, which is strangely majestic. It's very mm-hmm. humble. It's very quiet. I think perhaps sometimes when people think deep sea, the imagination implants a lot of false images but actually even the deepest point on the planet is actually really quite tranquil and you know it's a real privilege to be able to do it sometimes so you've been down there i have yes i've been to serenity actually the jan we should talk about that so i did thirty-five thousand feet about four years ago okay we've done about 16 dives since then and i also went to the bottom of the philippine trench which was about the same depth yeah yeah wow that's pretty cool there are moments where it becomes quite surreal where you can be sitting at the end of the dive for example, in Serenity, we just sat the sub down on the bottom and sat and ate a bag of Doritos. I just mm-hmm. took took a moment, just you know, just sat down and thought, like 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 two old guys on a park bench, you know, like just <laughs> sort of sit there, and then you realize you're seven miles surreal. underneath the ship. And when you leave the bottom, there you get a big sort of come down. You're like your adrenaline's mm-hmm. like, right, and you you just have to wait. And you know, so normally I take a couple of test tubes that are full of espresso, shots of espresso with as much sugar in it as you can get, you know, and you you have this cold test tube of coffee gives you a little perk and then and then you come back up again so it's 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 very surreal it's not for everybody yeah but it's worth it totally worth it oh that's awesome amazing so we do got to bust in and talk about the snailfish at some point here so i might as well (laughs) go ahead and ask the question what in the world is a snailfish and then what makes this one stand out from the rest? Because I think there's a lot more shallow water species than there are these deep sea ones, right? There are, and I'm going to ruin something that you just said, but I'll leave that for a second. So the snailfish okay. are amazing. They are, in terms of the family, the Laparidae, they are the deepest family in the world by at least a thousand meters. My aunt. They're not just a little bit deeper than other groups. They're quite significantly deeper. But what I love about them is that they're not a deep sea fish. That family, most of them are shallow water. You get them up estuaries and lagoons and places like that, you know, and they're currently radiating 
evolutionary. So that there are, there are something like between three and four hundred species of snailfish. They just don't care. They just overtaken all the old deep sea fish and they've gone right down there. And then obviously the Mariana Trench has a snailfish. It lives at around depths between six and a half to eight thousand meters, and it's just incredibly well adapted for high pressure because one of the things it has to overcome, obviously those depths, is pressure of 800 atmospheres, which is extraordinary. It also has to cope with a total lack of sunlight, very, very little food. The temperature is maybe 1.8 degrees Celsius, so it's super cold. And yet, every single time you put a camera down to those depths, they are just doing fishy stuff. Just like It's like they just don't care. Ah. <laughs> They're amazing. What would it actually be like if we could hold this fish while it's alive? What would it be like? Well, the first thing is, is a lot of people think that in the darkest depth of the ocean, things are going to be big. And it's always really disappointing to tell people that they're not. They're really small because there's no food there. So there's no food to sustain a large animal. And so snailfish tend to be around maximum size, maybe 25 centimeters, which is, I don't know, whatever that is, about 12 inches, 10 inches, something like that. And those are the relatively big ones. A lot of them are half that size. They're kind of pinky color, but they're actually mm -hmm. transparent. So when you have them in your hands, you can see the white muscle and you can see the liver. When you film them underwater, you can always see this orange coloring on its belly. That's actually its liver. Mm. Right? It's, not, it's not an external marking. And when you turn them the females upside down, you can see all of the eggs in there. Oh. And you can see the skull up close. From a scientific point of view, there's a real problem with snailfish in that when you land them, and to be honest, we would rarely catch more than one or two at a time. Once they're on the deck, you've got to get them in the cold quickly, quickly, mm -hmm. quickly, quickly. Like we're talking within minutes. Because they use this gel on the outside, the vehicle we brought them up in has gone through the surface water. And around Mariana, the surface water could be 20, 30 Celsius. And so for that last 20 minutes, we're trying to get the thing on board. These fish are essentially cooking because they're supposed mm -hmm. to be nearly freezing point. And so when they come on board, you have to chill them and basically the skin just starts to fall off them. They start to just fall apart and they're really super fragile. And when we've finally taken a couple of biopsies and a couple of samples or whatever, and you put them in a jar of ethanol to preserve them, unfortunately, they just shrivel up into the yellow blob. And so mm -hmm. a lot of people will come around our place and go, oh, can, can, you, can you show me the Mariana snailfish? And you bring it out and they go, ugh. <laughs> <laughs> I was just going to ask, if you had any jars of um, Mariana snailfish that I could show my kids or have here at the contact station. Yes. I believe all of the original ones we caught are actually on Hawaii. And I can give you the number of the guy who's got them. So the, the, I think there's at least 45 Mariana snailfish on Hawaii, which I'm pretty oh, sure wow. they, they would love to send over. Great. Thank you. 50 million acres of the trench itself is unknown to us. And growing up here in the Marianas, we didn't uh, learn about our backyard, you know, the Mariana Trench. We learn about the 50 states and the Great Lakes and Chesapeake Bay. So I'm still learning and it's exciting to be bringing a lot of this education to our community and making a lot of those local connections to the Marianas. That's great. Very cool. Jihad, is there a local term for a snowfish that you could tell us? We still don't have local names, right, translated into both the native cultures we have here, the Chamorro language and the Rafalawash language. And so we've ha we're have we going through, uh, even right now, we're doing a naming of uh, newly discovered mud volcanoes that are found in the Mariana Four Arc. 
That's between the trench and the islands. So we have about uh, 19 active mud volcanoes that occur there. And there were three unnamed ones. And right now we're doing a naming contest. Oh, cool. With the local community to name them in our indigenous language. And so with the Mariana Snellfish, it would be cool to try and get some kind of a local naming for the deep oh, yeah. species. Yeah. Yeah. Keep that's us something we're working on. Yeah. 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 Awesome. I'm trying to imagine what it would be like to like have to withstand the pressure down there. What would happen to like a person or a surface animal if they were down at that depth? And likewise, what would happen to the fish if it was up at the surface? Well, nothing happens to the fish on the way up because the reason why humans would don't want to go deep is because your lungs will collapse. And so to compress or decompress in a violent kind of way, you need to have a gas cavity in you somewhere, a balloon somewhere to explode. What the snailfish have done is they don't have swim bladders. So most fish have some sort of swim bladder for buoyancy. What's the reason why snailfish are so good at high pressure is they don't have that. So they've got nothing to explode on the way up. So what mm -hmm. they do is rather than using a gas bladder for buoyancy, they've got rid of all their skin and scales and decided to use gel. So they get buoyancy off of their exterior surfaces and their bone density is vastly reduced. They've evolved different adaptations to maintain neutral buoyancy. Amazing. That is awesome. I don't know if you know this, but it's actually no longer the deepest fish in the world. I did read about that. I read that article. I'm and curious. you found that too, right? You found that other Did one, you find right? the new one? in a different trench. Yes, I did. Yeah, you're totally okay. incredible because it's unfortunately the Mariana lost its prestige about six months ago. But it's not such a bad story. We found another snailfish just to the trench north of Mariana, the Ogasawara trench, and it's about 150 meters deeper. But hot off the press, we haven't told anyone this yet. Genetically, a lot of these snailfish we're finding in Nancy Shoto Trench or Philippine Trench or Japan, Ogasawara, Mariana. The genetic difference between them is so small mm. that we're kind of sitting on the fence here going, are these actually all different species or are these all exactly the same thing? Huh. I was going to ask if there's any like mixing, if they hop trenches at all or if they're kind of... Well, this is why we thought they don't do that because with a minimum depth of 6,500 meters, the sills between each trench are much shallower than that. So they cannot get up over and back mm. down again. And actually, from that perspective... The Mariana Trench is actually five different deep bits altogether because they're being cut off from one another by subducting seamounts. So technically, if the fish can't go less than 6,000 metres, there are five populations in Mariana alone before you even get to Ogasawara or before you get to Palau or Yap. And each one of these has its own fish. And so, well, the Mariana snailfish as a brand is no longer the deepest fish, it might be in terms of if they're all the same. And we even found snailfish in the trench off Indonesia recently, and it's always, mm. always, always the snailfish that are killing this deep stuff. <laughs> killing the deep stuff. That's awesome. Yeah. What is it that is putting this roof on where the Mariana snailfish or these real deep water snailfishes can live? Why can't they pop up over that and go down? It's to do with the cells. So whenever you see a deep sea fish on the internet or on TV and it's got big fangs or a lure or big crazy eyes or it's black, and it, that's all to do with being in the dark. That's got nothing to do with deep sea. That's dark sea fish. That's about hunting mm -hmm. in the twilight. Any adaptations to high pressure tend to be a molecular level. Right? You see a Mariana snailfish, it doesn't look that different to a shallow water snailfish. But it's what's going on the cellular level. So each of your cells are a closed sphere. 
for some reason, there's an evolutionary advantage to going down deep, which in this case is probably access to food in the form of little amphipod crustaceans. What they're doing is they're packing their cells full of an osmolite. And this osmolite basically allows the cell to experience 800 atmosphere pressure without collapsing. So you're matching the internal pressure to the external pressure. But by doing that, you're just giving yourself a minimum depth range by pushing to the top because the cell wall is never going to be that fluid because when you're cold, it hardens the what's called the phospholipid bilayer. So it's like butter. Some butter goes hard when you chill it. Some butter goes soft when you chill it. And so it's not very flexible. So the adaptation to high pressure has meant you'd have to sacrifice how shallow they yeah. can go in return. Mm, okay, thank you. The big yeah. players other than the amphipods and the snailfish are... And Mariana, let's think Mariana specifically, just the next deepest fish is called Basozetus. It's a cuscul, which is part of the family uh, Osidaidae. And they are possibly one of the most abundant animals on the planet, but no one's ever seen, no one's ever heard of them because they're a little bit too far offshore, a little bit too deep than most people go. But the entire Pacific Ocean is a little bit too far offshore and a little bit deeper than most people go. So those are huge, big, big brown fish. If you cut them open, you'll find that they're also packing themselves out with gel. And so, they're again, they're cheating because they're trying to get away from having to use gas swim bladders. And they do have one, but it's quite well reduced. So they're the next big fishy player. The two most conspicuous other animals are probably the big red prawns. They go down to about 7,800 meters. They're beautiful, wow. big red, flamboyant animals. Beautiful, yeah. beautiful things. They're, they're all, over the, all over the Mariana. And then there's what's called the supergiant amphipod. So most amphipods are about two centimeters long. This one's like a foot long. It's massive. Oh my goodness. Uh, they're all across the Mariana too. And and the other thing we found out a couple of years ago uh, is there are jellyfish, just normal track images of jellyfish down to just over 10,000 meters in the Mariana. Mm-hmm. And they're just they're just fl- swimming around like normal jellies. And so, yeah, there's, there's, there's a whole bunch of stuff going on down there. That's awesome. How do you go about studying this fish when you're only able to observe it for a short amount of time and you must have harvested a holotype at some point? So how'd you go about getting that? Easy for you. So it's the easiest thing in the world to do. Oh, I could go down there and do it, you're telling me? No, you don't have to go there. There's a misunderstanding that submersibles are great for all science. Submersibles are only good for some science. A lot of the majority of stuff we've done has come from static cameras and traps. And so they just free fall down and we call them back later and they float back to the surface. Yeah. Now, it's a really interesting mix of high tech versus low tech. The communication device you need to talk to this camera, that's very expensive. It's a titanium tube. It, it tells you what depth it's at. You can tell it to drop a weight to come back up. And the buoyancy to bring it back up is also very expensive. So these things can cost, like I say, $100,000, $150,000. But the bit that catches the amphipods or the fish it's like a $20 fish trap from a fishing shop up the road. We just go in and just mm-hmm. go out and buy them all out and say, how many fish traps you got? The guy's like, oh, I've got 10 left in stock. And we're like, cool. Put it on the credit card, lash them to a $150,000 vehicle and fire it down at the bottom of the Mariana. And it's, the fish are not snobs. They, they, you know, you put a mackerel in a tube behind a funnel and they'll get in there and, and that's it. So it's mm-hmm. relatively easy. That's amazing. I've got a question for you, um, Jihan. So it seems like this is a really amazing place where researchers from all over the world can come and study these amazing fish and seamounts and other things. Like, how is that managed? Is like, did Alan have to get a permit from, you know, the monument, or how does that all work with the study of this area? 
Yeah, anyone wanting to do research or exploration within the Mariana Trench Marine National Monument would have to come get a special use permit from the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, which is then collaboratively managed and coordinated with NOAA and also our local monument manager here in the Northern Mariana Islands, which is the local Department of Lands and Natural Resources. So we kind of all package that permit application for the researcher. One exciting expedition was just this past December. We were able to get a local citizen scientist from Saipan by the name of Jordan Sewell, who was able to get on the Kilo Moana expedition as a resource monitor for the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. So we're always looking for opportunities to get our local students and local community members on these research vessels yeah. to those cultural connections to the monument and this area. What an amazing backyard. Yeah. It's so cool. Yeah. What's the general attitude of the community like towards like these research expeditions? Is it positive? Do people celebrate these discoveries like the snailfish or is it not a big news story when that happens? So slowly we're trying to get all this education and outreach out, promoting a lot about the Mariana Trench and all the cool deep sea species that have been explored there. There's a lot of research that has gone into it, but I feel like it's just a matter of getting all that information to the community mm. um, and making sure that there's a space. And so currently we have the Mariana Trench Marine National Monument a Visitor's Contact Station that I'm sitting mm. on right now, where we're coming up with concept planning and design to really have the space to have this learning center where the community can come in and feel like they're in the Mariana Trench, you know, and to oh, really cool. learn about our backyard because it's so hard to access for many of us. I've only gone as far as the island of Pagan, which is north of Saipan and south of the monument in the islands unit. It's very hard for our locals to access the area. So there's a need for us to bring the Mariana Trench yeah. to our community. Okay, that's very good. Alan, I'm curious what these fish are eating. I've heard about whale falls. I saw some of your work on like just kind of what you've seen down there. What are what are they eating? And is it pretty diverse or are they just kind of opportunistic? It's a kind of indirect diverse feeding. So all the organic matter from plankton to jellies to squid to whales. Unfortunately, stuff in the surface has to die. Not everything is killed by humans. <laughs> all, these all these naturally occurring organic falls go down into the trench. And it's not the snailfish which is eating them at all. It's the amphipods. And amphipods are little crustaceans. And they are amazing. They are the true, true gardeners of the hazelnut, right? So anything that comes down, they will eat it. And they will intercept it super fast, consume it really fast. They'll gorge themselves to the point that they can survive long periods of time with no food. And they turn it to lipid or fat very, very quickly. So they become essentially peanuts, right? Really high energy, <laughs> you know, small volume, but high density food source. And then the snailfish, they obviously smell when there's a dead fish there. And they associate that with a big swarm of amphipods. So when they come to our cameras, they're not coming because there's mackerel bait there. They're coming to just pick off the amphipods. And so the problem with feeding on amphipods is amphipods are so voracious. If you swallow one, it will just bore its way through your body cavity, right? <laughs> no. And go, hey, 
<laughs> and so what the snailfish do oh is they gosh. have two mouths. They have two mouths. They have a mouth that you can see what? on the exterior. Yeah. It's like an alien. It's for suction feeding. So if you notice the videos, it's got these little pores around its face, and that's to detect vibration because it can't see. And so it will suck in an arthropod, and then it will just sit on the sea floor for a bit. And originally we were like, what on earth are these things doing? Why do they keep passing out? And what it is, it's got a second jaw on the inside, which is like oh two gosh. grinding plates. So it sucks the arthropod into its mouth, and when it's swallowing it, the arthropod is getting ground between two plates so that when it enters the stomach, it enters dead. And doesn't do an alien on it. Oh so, my goodness. Yeah. That is crazy. Yeah. These fish are amazing that they have so many neat adaptations. That's just amazing. Oh, well, they look really goofy and cute, but they're horrible predators. Okay. <laughs> when it okay. comes down to it. <laughs> oh my goodness. You want one guy? Yeah, sure. I, well, the thing is, I just don't know how much we know about this. I may as well ask, do you know anything about the reproductive behavior of this species at all? Uh, not really. This you, Most of the females have extremely big eggs in terms hmm. of egg diameter to body size, that seems to be a thing. They're probably brooders. We did a study about four years ago, which has still left everybody slightly perplexed in that you, if you analyze the otolith, which is the ear bone, and you can cut those out of fish and it'll tell you how old it is. And it looks like the age of the snailfish is between 10 and 15 years old. They don't grow much, they don't live much longer than that. But you use the rings on the otolith a little bit like a tree and you count the number of years and whatever. But you can also do this interesting stuff with oxygen isotopes. It tells you the type of environment it's been in on each one of those years. And it was a colleague who had, it was in Hawaii at the time that had done this work, and she basically concluded that after the larval stage, these things were sitting at 5 degrees Celsius. And we're sitting there going, I can't, no, that can't work. That's way too warm. Hmm. Where do you go that's that warm? And, and, and we had these checked and cross-checked and double-checked and whatever, and this is well, the otolith says just after the hatch, they are sitting at five degrees Celsius. And we're like, well, hmm. the only way to get to five degrees Celsius from the bottom of Mariana is to go straight up in the water column to about a thousand meters and then hang around there for a year and come back down again. But then, how would the fish know to come back down on that spot? Because after a year, it would have drifted halfway across the Pacific. And so, in terms of life history, there's some interesting, confusing clues kicking around. But right now, I don't really know what to make of that. Hmm. Yeah. I'm a bit surprised that you see annuli on the ear bones at all. I would think that it'd be kind of a constant temperature down there with a kind of constant growth rate. Is that not the case? Are they having like good growing seasons and poor growing seasons that lay down those different rings? That's one of the criticisms of using this in deep water. But there, originally there was a lot of talk about how deep sea animals had no seasonality. And that's not true. We put a pressure sensor down. You can see the tides. Right, you can see the tides really? going up and down. You can see okay. leap tides, spring tides, M2 constituents, because the sea level is rising up and down. So if you zero yourself to 8,000 meters, the sea is going from 8,000 to 8,002, 8,000 to 8,002. So you're still experiencing the same two-meter swell as any other fish in the sea. And with that, you have seasonality. But the big one for deep sea animals is what's happening on the surface, because you have spring blooms. You have these big periods of crazy surface productivity, and mm. after a couple of months, the bloom dies and sinks. And then suddenly you have this huge input of oh, organic cool. matter, okay. and that lays down a layer on your otolith. That's the thinking. It certainly works for a lot of deep sea animals, but you know, when it comes back to these snailfish, you're like, ah, I don't know. That's, it's something else is going on somewhere there. I don't know. It's mm. really interesting. How did you get interested in the job you're doing? 
being a Saipan native and a local to the Marianas, we are always very uh, connected to the ocean. And like I said, growing up here, we didn't really learn about our backyard. So as I got older, it was something that I was very much interested in. And so much of my career has been in coral reef management with the local government. So the past 12 years, I've been doing a lot of local coral reef communications. And it wasn't until last year of March did I assume this position as a park ranger. It was all very much an accident, to be honest. Mm -hmm. uh, I actually did an undergraduate degree in industrial design, and I ended up working huh. with a guy who was a professor in deep sea biology. And he was looking for a mechanical engineer at the time. Just And the this, this stuff he was asking to for me to build was just so weird. And this, it's not just like deep cameras. He was wanting to put like uh, electric shock gear at 4,000 meters to give fish a little electric shock so they do a fast start in front of a high-speed camera because you can't bring any of these fish up alive, right? So you've got yeah. the basic studies we used to do on shallow water fish 100 years ago. We're only just now doing deep sea. And he wanted like traps that were watertight so you can measure oxygen consumption, but all completely tight. It was just the most weird stuff and it was fascinating. And over time, we just, I just sort of realized that a lot of the stuff were building for the experiments weren't working because we knew so little about the behavior of the fish. So I ended up starting sort of analyzing more about the fish behavior than the actual experiment. And over time, I think everyone in deep sea either comes in an engineer and ends up a biologist or comes in as a biologist and ends up uh, an engineer because it's, okay. there's that type of environment that you need to be both. Yeah. And uh, at some point, given my engineering background, I remember going to Boston and saying, why do people only ever go to 6,000 meters? Why are people not going to 11,000? Because engineering principles are the same. There's no reason why you can't. And cost-wise, it's not that much different. Mm. And it was just that little spark. I thought, I'm going to build something and go all the way. <laughs> I just like how people kind of get into their careers. It's really interesting to hear. Thank you. What about you, Alan? What, what's kind of the next bit of research that you'd like to see done in this area, in this part of the world, or with these kinds of fishes? When you used to work in trenches, or there's a tendency to focus on the Mariana because it's the big one that people have heard of, and it's the deepest mm -hmm. one, and it's prestigious. And with absolutely no disrespect to the Mariana, there's like another 27 trenches. And <laughs> we need to study the Mariana in context. And so the analogy I normally use is, how much about the flora and fauna of Mount Kilimanjaro would you learn if you only ever studied Mount Everest? Right? And so you have to study lots of different ones. So this is why we bounce around. Sometimes we go to Maya, sometimes we go to Philippines, sometimes off New Zealand, sometimes off Chile, sometimes off Tonga. And then you're starting to try and disentangle what are the laws of high pressure biodiversity globally? What are things that happen in, let's say, the Mariana on its own? Because right now you could study the Mariana every square inch of it, but we don't know how much of that is because of where it is right now or because of recent history or because those are just the laws of ecology. And so the Mariana is an amazing flagship trench and the Mariana snailfish is like the quintessential deep water snailfish. But as we go around and place it in a greater context, I think we learn a lot more about what makes the trenches special against the rest of the deep sea and what makes certain trenches more special than the others. Cool. It's going to take a long time. <laughs> yeah. Long time, a lot of money. Do you have kind of a career goal for yourself in terms of like questions you want to answer or just keep discovering? Yeah, we've done 16 trenches already, but the other the thing we're also trying to do is trying to work out what's happening on the abyssal plains in between. So the trench story with the deepest fish is story in the vertical, right? It's just how deep do they go down? How deep can they come up? All that kind of stuff. Hmm. There's also the horizontal story. The Pacific is huge. 
I mean, Jan will know this when you look at a map of the Pacific Ocean, right? None of these islands are really standing out. The Pacific is just unbelievably big. And so there's been a tendency over the years for science to be done relatively close to shore, even deep water science. And okay. the idea is to try and fill out these big white spots in our map of biodiversity. To me, that's just as important as the deepest stuff is the distance story as well. Yeah, that's oh, cool. Yeah. Yeah. I've been looking forward to this one for a while. It's just like fascinating to like, yeah, think of a, a place like I'm never going to go to, but learn about it from folks like yeah. you. It's awesome. Appreciate it. <laughs> thank you so much, Alan. I learned so oh, much from you. you. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. yeah cool. All right. Well, thanks so much and get out there yeah. and enjoy all the fish, especially the snailfish. They're super cool. Thank you so Great. much. Thank, thank you. you. Thanks for listening to Fish of the Week. My name is Katrina Liebeck, and my co-host is Guy Iro. Our production partner for the series is Citizen Race Car. Produced and story edited by Tasha A.F. Lemley. Production management by Gabriella Montekin. Post-production by Alex Brower. Fish of the Week is a production of the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, Alaska Regional Office of External Affairs. We honor, thank, and celebrate the whole community, individual tribes, states, our sister agencies, fish enthusiasts, scientists, and others who have elevated our understanding and love as people and professionals of all the fish. Fish.